We are in a section of the book of Romans where Paul is answering the question, who needs the gospel? If the news about Jesus is good news, who is this good news for? And if you've been following this in the run-up to Easter, before we uh, took a break at Easter, if you've been following this, you'll have noticed that the further we read in this section, the wider the net is getting spread here. The further Paul goes, the more people are shown to be under God's wrath. The more people are shown to be in need of God's salvation. In the second half of chapter 1, Paul started with the obvious people, those who openly deny God, people who unapologetically give their worship to created things rather than the Creator, people who live to serve their own lusts and desires instead of God. Then in the first half of chapter 2, Paul spread the net a bit wider. He showed us that people who are outwardly good are also under God's wrath. They're as guilty of rebellion against God as the people in chapter 1. They just do a better job of hiding it from other people. But, Paul says, God knows their secrets. He knows their unrepentant hearts. They might impress other people, but they are storing up wrath against themselves for the future day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So far, Paul has told us irreligious people need the gospel. People who think they're good need the gospel. But Paul is not finished. The first part of chapter 2 was addressed to religious people. But Paul knows there are different kinds of religious people. There are people who are nominally religious. They don't take it too seriously. And there are people who take their religion very seriously. And those are the people Paul is turning to in our passage this morning. He tells us, that people who are serious about God need the gospel. We're going to look together at Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 29. And if you haven't found that and you're using a church Bible, it's page 1129, or in the large print, 1747. And as you're turning there, remember with me what the gospel is. It's the good news that although we can't save ourselves from sin and from the punishment sin deserves, God has done what was needed to save us. His son Jesus came and took the punishment for us. We've been singing that in our songs. If we trust in his work, we are saved from the punishment and also the power of our sin. We are set free to serve God. And here in the second half of chapter 2, Paul says this gospel is not just for pagans. It's not just for people who are half-hearted about religion. 
This gospel is equally crucial for people who are serious about God. And in Paul's context, there was nobody more serious about God than the Jews, Paul's own people. And that's who Paul is speaking to in verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. This is God's word. Originally, the name Jew was used for people from the part of Israel known as Judah, the southern part of Israel. But by the time Paul is writing, all Israelites were known as Jews. And they are people who are serious about God. But their approach to being serious about God is not based on the good news about Jesus. And here Paul says, if your religion is not built on that foundation, it's useless. No matter how serious you are about it. And in verses 17 to 27, Paul shows why it's inadequate. He says, When religion relies on anything other than the gospel, it results in, first of all, hypocrisy. In verses 17 to 22. And the key phrase in these verses is found in verse 17. You rely on the law. Or you rest on the law. Paul is talking here about the law given by God to Moses, the law that's recorded in the first five books of the Old Testament. And there is no question the law of God is good. 
It's from God. It tells us what God loves and what he hates. But here, Paul is talking to people who are relying on that law for their salvation. And he wants them to see the folly of that. Look how he goes on to describe these people in verse 17. You boast in God. That's a good thing. You don't deny God's existence or God's power. You're excited about him. You know that salvation comes from him. That's good. And, verse 18, because you have his law, you know his will. You know that he loves justice and purity. You know that he punishes disobedience and evil. And, still in verse 18, not only do you know God's will through his law, you allow yourself to be instructed by it. And so you approve of what is superior. You look at life through the lens of God's law. You use God's word to decide what's right and what's wrong. This is all good. And it gets better. Paul is talking to people who not only wanted this for themselves, they pour their energy into passing this on to others. In verse 19, these people are guides for the blind meaning the spiritually blind, a light for those in the dark. Verse 20, they instruct the foolish. They teach little children. And what they're teaching is good stuff. Paul says it's the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So what's the problem, Paul? The problem is they rely on all this. The foundation of their religion is their own response to God. And so they learn the law, they know how to get the right answers from the law, and they teach the law, but they can't keep the law. Look again at verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Notice the examples Paul chooses here. He mentions three pretty blatant sins, stealing, adultery, and robbing temples. But then remember who he's talking to. He's talking to devout religious people. People who take God seriously. People who are into their religion in a big way. They're up to their necks in taking God seriously. So how many of these people do you think are stealing and committing adultery and robbing temples? Not many if any of them. So why does Paul choose these particular examples? We might ask, why doesn't he mention more subtle sins, like how they treat their workers, or the amount of interest they charge when they give a loan? Why doesn't Paul pick things these people might actually be guilty of? 
I think he picked these three because they are prominent among the Ten Commandments. They are obvious sins. And they're sins these people would be very proud of not doing. But Paul is challenging their pride. He's saying, I don't need to pull out some obscure area of disobedience, like eating the wrong kind of meat. You're actually guilty of the most obvious sins. You think, Paul says, that you are the religious high achievers. And you're relying on your own great response to God. But you can't even keep the Ten Commandments. Never mind the obscure stuff. But how can Paul say that? How can he say that about these people? I think he's drawing on what Jesus taught. Jesus opened up a whole new perspective on God's law. He said to people, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus said, You don't have to do the deed to be guilty of breaking the commandment. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here. Jesus' principle applies to stealing and to temple robbing too. We break the commandment not to steal when we covet what someone else has. When we wish that it was ours. And when we brood over that wish in our hearts. We rob temples when we're motivated by the same idols as our religious people are. Wages, houses, holidays, popularity. We rob temples when we get up in the morning motivated by those same idols. So here's Paul's point. He says, you people are serious about God, but you are relying on your own religious success, your knowledge and your obedience. That's what you are basing your religious hopes on. And the result is a life of hypocrisy. Paul says, you appear to have it all together and you teach others, but you're as guilty as everyone else. He says, I don't even need to mention subtle sins. I can get you for coveting, lusting, and idolatry. Well, where is the application here for us? To find the application, all that we have to do is take the word Christian and substitute it for the word Jew here. Now, I know Jewish people don't acknowledge Jesus is the Messiah, and Christians do. In that sense, Jews and Christians are not interchangeable. But Paul's target here is men and women whose day-to-day religion is based on their own response to God. And Christians can fall into that just as easily as Jews. You and I can be guilty of relying not on the good news about Jesus, but on our own religious success. 
our knowledge and our obedience. And what happens to us when we fall into this? We begin to live lives of hypocrisy. If my sense of security with God is based on my knowledge and my obedience, then I will act like I understand more than I really do understand. And I will act like I obey better than I really do obey. If I'm struggling with some sin, I'm not going to confess it to my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not going to seek their help in overcoming my sin. Why not? Because that would make it obvious I'm not really succeeding in my religious life. And so I will be more concerned to appear obedient than to actually be obedient. I will be more concerned to appear wise than to actually be wise. When our religion relies on our own performance, it inevitably results in hypocrisy. Think about the alternative. If my standing with God is based on what Jesus has done, then I'm set free from having to impress people with what I've done. I can humble myself enough to own up to my sin. I can own up to my desperate need for wisdom. I'll be willing to be challenged and held accountable by others. I'll be willing to be taught and to learn from others. You and I need the gospel because we so easily start relying on what we know and what we've done. And that can only lead to hypocrisy. Paul goes on in verses 23 and 24. He says, When religion relies on anything other than the gospel, it results in God's name being dishonored. In verse 23, the NIV has translated Paul's words as a question. But it should be a statement in verse 23. You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Think for a moment about the way religious people are portrayed on TV. Especially the Christian characters in dramas on TV. Now maybe there are exceptions to this, but aren't they mostly self-righteous men or women. They preach morality, but they don't practice what they preach. Don't they tend to have a superior attitude? Aren't they uptight people? Now, part of the reason for that is because people take delight in making fun of Christians. They enjoy presenting Christians in a bad light. That's true. But, it has to be said, we can give them plenty of ammunition for presenting us that way. 
we can be prone to giving off a smug, superior attitude. We can be overly sensitive. We can be judgmental. We can be exposed as hypocrites. And when that happens, it is God's reputation that suffers. It's the name of Christ that gets dragged down. But when you and I base our life on the gospel every day, we will not come across as superior. We'll realize we are no better than any other sinner. And we will not be overly sensitive and defensive about ourselves. We'll realize God is the great one, not us. Tim Keller asks us this question. He says, Are we living as an advertisement for God or as a keep clear sign? Only the gospel produces churches and people who commend God to the world. If you and I are relying on our own religious success, then our lives are going to be like keep clear signs. Our lives will tell others that religion is about claiming to be better than other people, even while we're doing the same things as other people. And ultimately, in verses 25 to 27, Paul says, when religion relies on anything other than the gospel, it results in condemnation. Back in the days of Abraham, God had given the Jews the sign of circumcision. It was a mark in the flesh that signified they were set apart for God. They were his people. And Paul knows some of those listening to him are going to be thinking, yes, Paul, but I have this mark. That does make me different. Commentators tell us the Jews at this time generally believed that no one who was circumcised could go to hell. The Bible doesn't say that, but the Jews believed it. And there is a parallel today with the way some people think about their baptism, whether they were baptized as a child or as an adult. We can fall into thinking, yes, Paul, but see, I've been through this ceremony. I even have photos of me going through this ceremony. I've received this sign that God has accepted me, a sign that I'm approved, one of his people. How many people are there walking around England today, tens if not hundreds of thousands of people who are relying on the fact they've been baptized? Their religion consists of thinking, I've had the procedure, so I'm in. I'm safe. And you and I know It's not only nominal Anglicans and Catholics and Methodists who can think that way. Plenty of times people have spoken to me about someone who hasn't shown signs of genuine religious life in years. 
And yet that person is described as a Christian because they prayed the prayer one time. They asked Jesus into their heart one time. And they were baptized. They even became a church member. As if those procedures they went through mean that they're safe from hell. And we can bring it closer to home. How often do you and I get complacent about some sin? And how often do we feel secure even as we're tolerating sin in our lives because, well, I'm a member at Pelsall. God knows where I stand. He's not bothered if I make a little room in my life for this coveting or lusting or idolatry. You and I can begin to think that way. But look what Paul says, verse 25. Circumcision or baptism or church membership has value if you observe the law, if you live in obedience to God. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised or baptized or a church member. Paul is turning up the heat here. Earlier, he told us we cannot rely on our own performance. We are lawbreakers. Now, he says, lawbreakers can't grasp onto religious procedures to get them out of trouble. If you're a lawbreaker, he says, don't think circumcision or baptism or church membership will be your get-out-of-hell card. To understand what Paul says next, we have to focus back in on circumcision. Paul says to the Jews, you are confident your circumcision will save you, despite your law-breaking. You think that mark in your flesh means you're safe. But, Paul says, at the last day, on judgment day, you will be condemned. And what will be God's case against you? He will point to uncircumcised Gentiles who did live in obedience to him. Look at verse 26. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. Paul says to these Jews who are serious about God, you try to obey God, but you can't. And so you fall back on your circumcision as proof that you are in the right with God. But on judgment day, God will call forward men and women who had none of your privileges. They didn't have your religious upbringing. They didn't go through your religious ceremonies. But they did obey God. Their lives did glorify God. And their lives will be the witnesses that condemn you. 
Well, who are these people who are, whose lives are pleasing to God? Paul will get to that in a moment. So we'll hold that question for a moment. But here, the point for us to notice is, Paul is speaking to people who are serious about their religion. People just like you and me. And his point is, be careful. Consider what you are relying on. Are you relying on how well you know the Bible? How many verses you can quote in your prayers? Is that what's giving you confidence about your standing with God? Or are you relying on your years of church attendance or service in the church? Are you relying on the fact you've never sinned in any spectacular way? Is that what's giving you confidence day to day? Or is it that day, however many years ago, when you prayed the prayer? Or the day you were baptized? Paul is saying, if your religion and your sense of security is based on any of that, then your confidence is misplaced. And if you don't have a better ground for your confidence, if you don't have something better to rely on, then you will be condemned on the judgment day. That is Paul's point. And he's making this point for people like you and me. People who are serious about God. And so this is a call for us to examine ourselves. Honestly, what am I relying on? Really? Now all of us, I'm sure, could give the right answer. We could say I'm relying on Jesus' blood poured out to pay for my sin. And I'm relying on his righteousness wrapped around me like a robe. In Christ alone, my hope is found. We know the right answer. But is it true of us? Do we think and live in line with that answer? Or are we self-confident and self-righteous? Are we relying on some religious scorecard that we've been filling in for years? The gospel is not just for pagans and for people who are nominally religious. You and I need it too. We are lost without it. And if we have strayed from it, we need to come back to it. Well, there is something that Paul still needs to clear up here in this passage. We've mentioned it already in verses 26 and 27. He spoke about obedient people, people whose lives will condemn the lives of many religious people. And the obvious question is, Paul, if we're all lawbreakers, who are these people who keep the law's requirements? Paul has mentioned them in verses 26 and 27, so who are they? They are men and women who have received the gospel and are living out the gospel. They're men and women who have true religion. 
And Paul describes true religion in verses 28 and 29. True religion is inside-out religion. Look at verse 28. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. Remember, the Jews were used to thinking of themselves as God's people. But very often they fell into thinking their nationality and their performance was what made them God's people. And their religion has been described as an outside-out religion. In other words, it was all about externals. What they did and the religious privileges they had but their hearts were unchanged. That's exactly the kind of religion Paul has described in the first part of this passage. Outside-out religion. But here at the end of the passage, he says true religion is inside-out. It begins in here with a changed heart, inside. And then it works its way out into our lives. And what that means is true religion is dependent on God's work. I cannot perform heart surgery on myself, neither physically or spiritually. You can't do it either. But spiritual heart surgery is what's required for true religion. In verse 29, Paul calls this spiritual heart surgery circumcision of the heart. And the significant thing about this is that it's what God has always wanted. It is not the case that it used to be possible to please God by human effort. That has never been possible. Way back in the law, the law Paul has been talking about. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses stood up and delivered God's message to Israel. And the message was, circumcise your hearts. Way back in the law. In other words, Moses said, don't get too focused on the outward mark of physical circumcision. That's only a symbol. What I'm interested in, God says, is people with hearts that are marked for me. And Deuteronomy goes on to say, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. From the very beginning, God wanted circumcised hearts. And from the beginning, he said, circumcision of the heart is my work. You can't do that surgery on yourself. Here in verse 29, Paul says it's a work done by the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, God himself. Well, and how does this heart surgery happen? Paul is going to explain it a little later in this letter, but he's already given us a preview of it in chapter 1. 
We experience God's heart-changing power when we accept the double-edged message of the gospel. It's double-edged because it starts with bad news about our sinfulness. Then it brings us good news. Jesus died to save sinners. That double-edged message is the scalpel God uses to change our hearts. Because when it cuts into our hearts, it truly humbles us. We realize we deserve nothing from God. And we can earn nothing from Him. We are by nature lawbreakers. We only deserve wrath. When the gospel message cuts into us, it humbles us. And then it lifts us up. It tells us about God's mercy. Christ died to save sinners like us. When you and I have truly been cut to the heart by that double-edged message, then it changes us. We give up our pride. We give up our hopes of impressing God. And we rest all of our hope in Jesus. And day by day, our lives begin to show evidence of that change. We actually begin to keep God's law. Not in our own strength, but in God's strength. That is true religion. And true religion, Paul says, is pleasing to God. Look at the end of verse 29. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. We might never receive human praise. Those around us might malign us and misunderstand us until the day we die. But over the long haul, as we persevere with a life that honors God from the inside out, then our life will be pleasing to God. This is why people who are serious about God need the gospel. All of us here this morning are serious about God to some degree. We wouldn't be here if that was not true. But the great danger that you and I face is that we can begin to rely on the wrong things for our standing with God. We need the gospel just as much as anyone out there needs it. Because unless we pin all of our hopes on the gospel, we have no hope. We're going to close this morning by turning back to the gospel. We're going to sing, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness.